You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Uh, Today's Bible reading is from John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work for the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How about we pray as we get into God's word? Father, uh, we thank you for the chance to read and study your word. We thank you that it's uh, ever fresh and we ask that your spirit might make it real and new to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've got pretty rubbish eyes. Uh, My glasses are pretty hardcore. If you were to wear them, you wouldn't really be able to see much with them. If I take them off, I can kind of read to about here. uh, And I've got that kind of lost look that people have and you kind of just not tanned or anything like that. Uh, that's how I am. But with my glasses on, my world opens up and I love being able to see. It means I can read books. It means I can watch TV. It means I can enjoy God's creation. It means I can see my kids grow up. I can meet up with people and I can see their body language, all of these things. I love the gift of sight. So I've been thinking this week about how tragic it is when people don't have that gift or it's taken away, when, when people are blind. It must be incredibly hard to be blind. I mean, I I kind of joke sometimes, oh, I'm blind without my glasses, but of course I'm not. And for someone who is truly blind, they have this life of darkness that they uh, experience. Imagine not being able to see the beauty of a sunset or appreciate the the wonder of creation around you or never be able to see your, your parents or your loved ones. What a difficult thing that would be. And that's really the situation that we're invited to think about today. As we pick up the story, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples. And as they're walking along, they encounter a guy by the side of the street who's begging, who is blind. He has been, in fact, blind from birth. And so his entire life has been lived in this suffocating darkness that's cut him off from everything. See, it's not just the physical tragedy that this man experiences, there's a social tragedy as well. He's begging because he has no way to provide for himself. Back in the first century, there was no Centrelink, there was no safety net. This man has nothing except the, what, what he can do to rely on the generosity of his parents, of people around him, of the strangers walking past him on the street. But it goes even further than that because there's a spiritual dimension to it as well. In verse 2, as the disciples passed by, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, there was this common view, there was an assumption that personal suffering was because of personal sin. So this guy is blind, so people assume that God is punishing him for something. And he'd been born blind, so they think, oh, well, maybe it was his parents who sinned, or, or perhaps he sinned in the womb. 
By the way, they see it as a just punishment that this guy is getting what he deserves. And just imagine that kind of life. Imagine knowing that people look at your suffering and figure, well, that's just what he deserves. Imagine being his mother and people thinking, oh, was it something that she did or something that she was thinking while she was pregnant? Is that why he has this disability? That's one of the views that Jews had in the first century. Or if you're the son, maybe people just assume that he did something wrong before he'd even been born. It's easy for people to kind of come up with excuses not to be generous. We, we, we can do that. And you can imagine that people saw him sometimes on the street and told themselves, well, this is what he deserves, so I'm not going to bother giving him anything. This is a man who is in darkness. The closest thing I could think of today was the, the untouchables of India. As you know, uh, India is a Hindu country, and in Hinduism there's the idea of karma, that you reap what you sow, that the way that you've lived in previous lives will will, uh, shape and affect the way that you experience this life. And so if you're rich and you're prosperous and you're powerful, it's because you have lived a good life in the past. And if you're poor and you struggle, if you're at the, the bottom of society, it's because you're being punished for the life that you've lived previously. And this has led to the caste system, which is is legal now, but still exists in many ways informally. And so you have people who are considered the untouchable, who are at the very bottom of the social system, relegated to the worst jobs like cleaning sewers by hand or scavenging at the tip in the hope of finding something that might be valuable. Uh, They're often mistreated. I read the other day about a little kid who was beaten to death just for picking flowers from someone's garden. And these kinds of injustices are ignored because the police kind of look past them or they, uh, the untouchable don't have the money to pay for a bribe. And so these people are socially and spiritually demeaned and kind of isolated off the side of society, living in isolation. And this guy is like that too. He is spiritually, socially, physically isolated. This is a man living in darkness who desperately needs light. Today, Jesus will shine it on him. See, right from the start, it's clear that Jesus has a very different view of this man. Where the disciples ask him, was it his mother's sin or whatever? He says, no, 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 he rejects the whole notion. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. No, it was that the the works of God might be displayed in him. It's a bit of a tricky phrase, that one, but I think what he's saying is that actually God is going to do something dramatic to show something through this man's blindness. And we see it straight away. Jesus goes to work healing the man. He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, it's an unusual method of uh, healing. I think you'll agree. It makes us wonder, why did Jesus do this? Like we know that Jesus didn't have to do this. Previously, in one of the other stories in the Gospels, he heals someone just with these words from 25 miles away. So he didn't need to do it like this. There's a couple of reasons about why he might have done it. Uh, Some people think it was because the saliva of holy people was seen as as powerful. Not very COVID safe, but there you go. I think it was most likely because he wanted to see if this man would trust him. He gives him these instructions. I'm going to do this and then I want you to go to the pool. Will he trust that this man can heal him? Will he trust that this will work? I think that's what Jesus is asking. And the man does trust. He went and washed and came back seen. There's this genre of videos on YouTube you'll find that I just think are just so moving. You'll have a little kid 
who's been born deaf and they're given cochlear implants and you see the moment where they hear for the first time. It's just so beautiful. Like suddenly these noises around and they, they, they are picking them up and they realise that this is their mum talking to them and they start crying and celebrating. It's just a beautiful thing. And I was thinking that that's something similar to what we're seeing here. I, mean, I don't know if it's even possible to heal someone who's been born blind. Absolutely, you can heal people who've got cataracts and so on and they're beautiful videos too. But here we have this incredible moment where this man has never been able to see. Never. He's lived his life in darkness and suddenly light has come. Like I would want to celebrate if I saw this. It's a beautiful moment. And yet strangely, that's not how other people react. The neighbours are astonished. It's an incredible miracle, but frankly, they just can't believe it. Verse 9, no, no, it must have been someone else. It just looks like it. Unsure of what to make it all, they go to the Pharisees, who are kind of the religious authorities, and they turn out to be like the most poopy party poopers you've ever seen. It's an official term. <laughs> See, it turns out that Jesus had actually healed this guy on the Sabbath, and that goes against the Pharisees' rules. The Pharisees, you see, were the experts in the law who kind of uh, took God's laws and then tried to apply them to the people. God had said in the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He said to his people, once a week, every Saturday, I want you to rest from all of your work. It was God's gift to them so that they could stop and rest and worship and be together and focus on God. That was his gift to them. But the Pharisees had kind of focused in on this concept of work. Rather than seeing the gift, they wanted to focus on the work and they spent all of this time kind of trying to outline and delineate exactly what this term work meant. And they ended up coming up with 39 different categories of work to make sure that people didn't do it. Some of them were obvious. You couldn't plough a field, for instance, on the Sabbath. That makes sense. But there was others that were a lot less obvious. So they said, for instance, that you, you, you couldn't, if you were stitching something up, you couldn't do more than one stitch. If you were writing something, you could only write one little letter rather than a whole word. That would be work if you did that. Even today, some very strict Jews uh, will have special uh, light switches that have a special timer on them so that they believe that if you were to turn on the light switch, that would be considered work. And so they have to come get, find other ways to get around it. And so you have all of these rules. Now, to us, they seem kind of weird and a bit absurd, but these guys took it very seriously because they believed that they were in line with God's laws. They were trying to make sure that the people kept God's laws, but they kind of made up all of these other rules to kind of protect God's law. So they have a problem with what Jesus has done. You see, he's broken their rules in two ways. First of all, they had a rule that you couldn't need any bread or need any other thing on the Sabbath day. And effectively, Jesus has kneaded the mud together to put it on the, eye, the guy's eyes. So that's considered work. They also said that if you were to heal someone on the Sabbath, on, uh, the Sabbath it had to be that you, would just, you couldn't make them well. You just had to make sure that they were kept alive. You couldn't improve their health. So, for instance, if a building fell down, you could pull away the rocks to make sure no one had died, but that was all you could do, right? So Jesus has healed this guy on the Sabbath, and he could have done it the next day. He could have done it the previous day. He has uh, broken their rules by healing this guy on the Sabbath. But this raises a big question for them. You see, if Jesus had truly done this miracle, 
it suggests that God has blessed him, has given him a certain power. But why would God give him that power if he was breaking God's rules? Because they assume that God's rules are the same as theirs. You see them debating this, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Do you see the debate that they're having? So there's this division between them. And they kind of figure, look, it would actually be easier if it, the whole thing didn't happen. And so they go to the parents and say, look, is this your son and was he born blind? And they say, yeah, he was. Well, what's happened? We don't know. We just see that he's healed. We don't understand how. So then they go to the man again and say, what nerf is going on? But this guy has started to piece things together. You see, what's happening is the Pharisees have these very strict little categories. Jesus doesn't fit. And so they just don't want Jesus. But he's starting to realise that Jesus changes all the categories. Verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He's like, well, okay, well, I've just got to deal with the miracle and, and understand what Jesus is from the miracle. Frustrated, the Pharisees ask again, how did it happen? And now he gets really sassy. Verse 27, I've told you already, would you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Like it's salty. And the Pharisees aren't used to this kind of thing, so they revile him and try to put him in his place. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Like we are the experts in the law. You should listen to us. But the guy just doesn't have it. Verse 30, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And so here's the key line. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See, he's worked it out, hasn't he? He's realised that Jesus has some kind of power and so he's seeking to understand where that comes from. He wants to listen to who Jesus is. They reject him. They cast him out of the synagogue. And really this man has been thrown out of the community. See, if you were thrown out of the synagogue, it meant that you couldn't be part of God's people. You were rejected from the social life. All of these things have happened to this man. And at this point, as the guy walks away, he's probably thinking to himself, what just happened? Like, what a weird day. He woke up blind, as he always was, as he always had been. He started walking off, went to his spot where he would beg, was sitting there minding his own business, and some random guy comes along, spits in some mud, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go to the pool, and suddenly he can see. Like, this is bizarre, but it's wonderful. And at that moment, he probably felt like, Everything had changed. His life would be all good now. Finally, he could see and he'd actually be seen by everyone else. He'd be treated with respect. He'd be, he could be part of the community. He could get his own job, all of these different things. His life was opening up. But just as that's happening, it's all taken away from him and he's rejected and thrown out. Everyone's rejected him except Jesus. William Barclay says, Jesus is always true to the man who is true to him. And so Jesus now comes to him. Verse 35, Jesus had heard that they cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That term, the Son of Man, was used by the Old Testament prophets for the Messiah, the, the hero who had come to save God's people. 
And to this credit, to his credit, the man's very open to it. Verse 36, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And then Jesus says, you've seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He says, I am the one that all the prophets were talking about. And the man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This is a story about sight, obviously. It's about what we see. It's about physical sight. But even more than that, it's about spiritual sight, about seeing who Jesus is and why he came. And that's really what this series has been all about, hasn't it? Over the last month or so, we've been going through this series called The Signs of Jesus, thinking about the miracles that we find in the Gospel of John. But they're never just spectacular things. These miracles are signs, signs of who Jesus is and why he came and how we should respond. And in this story, we see two responses. We see someone who experienced this miracle and responded in faith and others who rejected it. And it's helpful to note here the context for this story. See, Jesus had come up to Jerusalem during what was called the Feast of the Tabernacles, sometimes known as the Festival of the Lights. It was this amazing annual festival where people would come from all over to Jerusalem and every night there would be these four giant bowls filled with logs of wood that would be lit up and they would create these beautiful, uh, amazing uh, torches and then people would grab their own torches and kind of dance around the city celebrating this festival of lights. As someone pointed out, uh, you know, when we, when it's nighttime here, there's still street lights and all of that. But back in the ancient world, they didn't have electricity. So when it was dark, it was really dark, except for these nights. Then the sky would light up this incredible festival of light, pointing to God offering light. And it's in the middle of that festival that Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Do you see what he's doing? Like he's taking these props that are around him and saying, I am the true light. Whoever, he says, follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's saying, if you trust me, if you believe in me, then I will give you this kind of light all the time. And he repeats it here in chapter 9. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's offering light. And this man, this blind man, has come to see it. But also these Pharisees have rejected it. And so we see in this story, the question arises, how will we respond to Jesus, the light of the world? Can we see him? As one writer puts it, this same light shines and it reveals everything. It reveals our hearts, whether we will respond and find life or it casts shadows upon us and shows how we might reject God. So I want to look at these two characters and then think about how do we respond to this light, the light of Jesus. First of all, look at the blind man. As Anthony Salvaggio says, in the beginning of this story, the blind man was in the dark, but by the end of it, he was the only one in the light. He saw both physically and spiritually. And I love how it progresses. See, his first understanding of Jesus is kind of a bit fuzzy, but by the end of it, it's crystal clear. In verse 11, when the Pharisees come and ask him how he'd been healed, he just says, this man called Jesus, he healed me. This man. At this point, he just sees Jesus as, as a talented, special 
man. But by verse 17, when they come back to challenge him, he says, no, 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 he was a prophet. See, there had been prophets in the Old Testament like Moses and Elisha and Elijah who had done miracles. And so now the guy is thinking, okay, he's not just a man, he must be a prophet. But as the story progresses in verse 31, he says, God listens to this man and if he was not from God, he could do nothing. He's realising that he's, he's got special access to God. In verse 38, when Jesus speaks to him, he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And so he has progressed in his understanding. He can see who Jesus is. At the start, he saw him as a man, but by the end, he sees him as God. He's come to see that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's not even just a prophet. He is the God-man, God in human flesh. That's who Jesus is, and that's what this man has come to understand. He's come to see Jesus. And that's what this whole book is all about. John says in chapter 20, the signs that I'm writing are are written in this book so that you may, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This man has experienced the power of Jesus. He's come to see that Jesus truly is the Son of God. But then you have the Pharisees. What a miserable lot they are. Like this extraordinary miracle is done. They can't see it. All they can see is that their little rules have been broken. Of course, they were wrong in their rules on the Sabbath. Yes, God wanted his people to take the Sabbath seriously, but there's something going wrong if you're opposed to God doing some extraordinary miracle on that day. Really, it speaks to their spiritual blindness. You see, these guys saw themselves as the experts. They knew the Old Testament front and back, like literally they would have known it off by heart. They knew everything in it, but they couldn't see what was in it. See, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God had promised that when the Messiah would come, one of the signs of the Messiah's coming would be that they would heal the blind. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. But now that it's actually happened... They can't see it. They can't perceive it. They refuse to accept it. In fact, they hate Jesus. In chapter, in verse eight, they say, John chapter eight, they say that Jesus has a demon. Within a couple of chapters, they've made a solemn commitment to have him killed. How did this happen? Like, how did these people who knew God's word so intimately, how could they know and miss this? How could they read everything and not see it? It happens right in front of them, but they can't perceive it. How could they hate this Jesus so much when Jesus is doing all these wonderful things? Well, they would tell you it was because he was a blasphemer. He was saying that he was equal with God. They couldn't handle that. It was actually something more basic than that, something they would never admit. They hated Jesus because Jesus could see them. Jesus could see their hearts and he could see that they were sinful. You see, these blokes had a reputation for for righteousness. They were the holy ones. They were the elite, the spiritual elite. But Jesus could see what they were really like. John 2, we're told that Jesus knew all people, that because he was God, he knew what was in a man. And so he could see the sin that was in them. 
See, they imagined that they were righteous because they could kind of keep a hold on most of their actions. They weren't murdering people. They weren't having affairs with people. But Jesus looks underneath the skin. He looks at the heart. And so he would say, even if you just hate someone, that's like murdering someone. If you, if you look at someone lustfully, that's like adultery. Jesus was looking inside them. He could see their sin and he was exposing it. That's why they hated it. They hated the fact that he exposed their sin. But here's the thing. Jesus could see what they were like and he could see how flawed they were, but he was still willing to accept them if they would just humble themselves. Isaiah 57, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So so here's the thing, and here is the key thing that we need to understand. If we want to see Jesus for who he is and what he's really like, we have to be willing to see ourselves. Jesus talks about this in one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the king of heaven. It's like he's got a key to open the door and he says, I'll let in anyone in who is poor in spirit. That word poor in spirit could kind of be translated beggar. It's like this guy was. He was physically, he was a beggar. He had nothing. And we are like that spiritually. We are beggars spiritually. One writer says that we are spiritually bankrupt. That's how the scriptures present it, Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Like if we were to present our claims to God, we would not have anything to offer. We are broken within There's this sinful instinct within us. We sin because we are sinful. We do these specific things because there is something within us that resists God. Just think about it. You know, like when we sing that song, I Surrender All? Like, doesn't your heart jar when you sing those words? Like, like you want to be independent. You want to run your own life. There's something within us that is broken and opposed to God. And the poor in spirit will recognise this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, to be poor in spirit means to have a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It's to feel that we are nothing and that we have nothing and that we look to God in utter submission to him and in utter dependence upon him and his grace and mercy. Do you see yourself like that? Certainly the Pharisees didn't. The idea would have been offensive to them. But it's the same for us too, surely. Like just listen to some of those phrases again, spiritually bankrupt, to have no self-assurance, to have a complete absence of pride, to have no self-reliance, to be conscious that we are nothing in the presence of God. Like we don't want to hear that. 
And everything around us tells us that we, we should have good self-esteem, that we should build ourselves up, that we're capable, that we're heroes, that we can be the, the gods of our life, so to speak. And every religion tells you that too. If you, if you want to get to God, you just need to do work hard, to be, be a good person, and you'll get there. But here, God is saying that that's not possible. And so we reject this. You know, oh, I'm not perfect, but of course, who is? I'm not like one of those bad people. But maybe we just can't see ourselves properly. C.S. Lewis was, of course, a very famous Christian author. But for a long time, he was an atheist uh, who thought very highly of himself. And in the process of him becoming a Christian, it was a real struggle. He really wrestled and resisted the call of God on his life. And there was one of the key moments in this journey was, was a season of his life where he decided that he wanted to be a better person. Still was an atheist, still didn't believe in God, but wanted to be more moral, wanted to be more ethical and, and committed to doing that, committed to being better, to self-improvement. But as he tried this, he said it was a very eye-opening experience. He says, for the first time, I examined myself properly and what I found appalled me. I was a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. He came to see himself properly. What he saw wasn't pretty. I wonder if you've experienced the same humiliating discovery. You try to be good, you, you want to improve, but you've come to see that you fall short. Yeah, a good person would celebrate everyone else's successes, but even when that happens, you look happy, but inside you're full of envy. A good person would be loyal and true to their friends, but you'd know what you've said about them behind their backs. A good person wouldn't yell at their kids, but you lost it this morning. This is what God can see. And I wonder if we can see if you can see, if you can see yourself. Because if you can, then God offers the side of his grace. So, so here's the thing. God can see us. He can see us in all of our dirt, all of our mess, the mess that no one else sees us, the mess that even we can't see. He can see all of that. But the wonder of the Christian message, the wonder of the gospel is that he can see it and he's willing to accept us, to forgive us, if we come to him. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He offers light and life and hope and joy to anyone who will ask for it. Anyone who will see themselves, he will show himself to. 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, like we're kidding ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are willing to see ourselves, then Jesus will show his grace to us and his forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're like. Jesus will accept you if you ask for him to, if you trust him, because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to live a perfect life on our behalf to provide the spiritual riches that we can't. 
We are spiritually bankrupt. He is wealthy and he gives that wealth to us. He came to die for our sins so that they could be forgiven. He took the judgment for those sins so that we don't have to. And he came to give us new life. He came to secure for us God, the Spirit living inside us to change us. That's what he did. Jesus can see us in all of our mess, but he's not horrified. He's willing to forgive and to embrace and to free us from sin's power. And this is the good news of the gospel. But you won't see the good news unless you're willing to hear the bad news. See, it doesn't sound right for us to be just talking about sin and how we're worthless and we've got nothing before God. Like that doesn't sound right in our culture. We're constantly being told that we're wonderful and we want to believe that. It sounds like you would just be destroying someone's self-esteem, surely. This is just going to wreck people. But the strange thing is when people actually see themselves and they know that God has forgiven them as well, and they have incredible joy. I caught up with a guy the other day who's had this profound season of his life where he's been convicted of his sin. He's been a Christian for some time, but in this latest season he's just realised how selfish he is and how he's been controlling and unfair on other people, one person in particular. And God just, just showed him all of this, just lit it up in his life. And it broke him. But he is so happy. He just couldn't stop beaming because he realises he's been forgiven and now he wants to change and the spirit is starting to change him. Like he apologised to this person. He sent letters to a whole bunch of other people he'd offended and they were just amazed. God had shown him, the light of God had shone into his life and now it's shining out of him. This joy that is just infectious and beautiful. Seeing who you are means you get to see Jesus and that changes everything. If you're willing to see your sin, God will show you his grace. When you come to the end of yourself, you'll find God waiting for you. If you confess your need, he will provide. If you, if you come poor in spirit, he will give you his riches. If you come with empty hands, he will fill them. But we must come. As John MacArthur says, the doorway to God's kingdom is very low and only people who crawl can come in. We have to be humble. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. He's saying, how will you respond to me? That will reveal your heart. This man was born blind, but he could see better than anyone. These other guys were born with sight and they assumed that they had everything, but they couldn't see Jesus. So can we see Jesus? Can we see ourselves? Because then we'll see Jesus. As William Barclay puts it, the man who is conscious of his own blindness and who longs to see better and to know more is the man whose eyes can be opened and who can be led more and more deeply into the truth. But the one who thinks he knows it all, the one who does not realise that he cannot see, is the person who is truly blind and who is beyond hope and help. 
Only the person who realises their own weakness can be strong. Only the person who realises their own blindness can learn to see. Only the person who realises their own sin can be forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story. It is an extraordinary miracle, a physical miracle of you enabling a man who was blind to see. But, of course, it shows us, it points us to a deeper spiritual miracle of a man being able to see himself and his need and seeing how Jesus would meet it. Lord, it's hard for us to accept that we are spiritual beggars, that we have nothing. We want to provide something. We want to reassure ourselves that we are something. But ultimately, we do need you. So we ask that you might show us ourselves and then show us Jesus. Bring us to the end of ourselves and then be there at the end. Show us your grace. Thank you that no matter what we've done, no matter what is within us, you know it and you're willing to accept us if we just come to you in faith. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Light of the world, light up our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.